Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Abby Johnson. Abby Johnson has always been fiercely determined to help women in need. This desire is what led Abby to an eight-year career with Planned Parenthood, our nation's largest abortion provider, and caused her to flee the organization, becoming an outspoken advocate for the pro-life movement. As a clinic director of Planned Parenthood, Abby realized abortion was a product they were selling, yet she loved and continued to serve the women that entered her clinic. That changed on September 26, 2009, when Abby was asked to assist with an ultrasound-guided abortion. She watched in horror as a 13-week-old baby fought for and ultimately lost its life at the hands of the abortionist. Seeking answers, Abby turned to a local pro-life group. Leaving Planned Parenthood and leaving as a threat to the organization, they took immediate action to silence Abby with a gag order and brought her to court on a case that was ultimately thrown out. Abby is the author of the nationally best-selling book, Unplanned, which chronicles her experiences. Today, Abby travels across the globe sharing her story, educating the public on pro-life issues, advocating for the unborn, and reaching out to abortion clinic staff who still work in the industry. She is the founder of And Then There Were None, a ministry designed to assist abortion clinic workers in transitioning out of the industry. To date, this ministry has helped over 430 workers leave the abortion industry. Abby lives in Texas with her husband and seven precious children. Thanks so much for being with us today, Abby. Oh, thanks for having me on. So let's start with how you got into the Planned Parenthood industry in the first place. Tell me about how your desire as a college-age woman to help other women and to do something meaningful in the world led you to Planned Parenthood? Well, honestly, I, I grew up in a home that never really talked about abortion. I mean, I, I remember my parents saying that we were against abortion, but um, my parents were not activists in any way, shape or form. So I was pretty um, just unknowing about either side of the issue. And I didn't grow up around an abortion clinic. Uh, I grew up in South Louisiana. There were no abortion clinics around us. Um, and so it just wasn't an issue that came up very often. But when I went to college, I met a woman who was trying to recruit uh, volunteers for Planned Parenthood. And honestly, I think in that at that meeting, that was really the first time I'd ever even heard the name Planned Parenthood before. So um, she started just giving me all the talking points about how Planned Parenthood is there to help women. Uh, they provide all of this uh, care, all of these health services to low-income women who, you know, without them would not have access to health care. Um and I just, I mean, I didn't have any reason not to believe what she was telling me. Um, and, you know, I didn't know the, the plight of a, a low-income, uninsured woman. And so when she told me this, I didn't have any reason to believe she wasn't being honest. It was really, it was my lack of knowledge, my 
uh, naivety, my, my ignorance truly, um, that led me inside of Planned Parenthood. Um, and once I was in, I mean, I really did believe with every bit of my being that I was helping women. Um, I believe that I was, um, helping to empower them, helping them to make decisions about their future and their bodies. And so, um, I really did feel like I was doing the right thing. Yeah. And I think that more or less, that's probably the reason that most people get involved in something like this advocacy work or working for Planned Parenthood. I think a lot of times it does come from this spirit of wanting to help and advocate for women's rights or, you know, feeling like you're really making a difference in the world for something that's positive. And obviously you found other like-minded and good-hearted souls behind the doors of Planned Parenthood. Uh, When did you realize that abortion was a product, as you said, that Planned Parenthood was selling? And describe to us, if you can, that abortion that you witnessed that changed your life. Sure. So uh, in August of 2019, I'd already been there for eight years. And uh, in August of that year, during a budget meeting, I was told that uh, we were going to be doubling our abortion quota. And so, you know, I was told for eight years that our goal at Planned Parenthood was to keep abortion safe, legal and rare. Um, So I didn't understand this whole idea of doubling an abortion quota. And I remember at the time, you know, really wondering, okay, is it that the organization is, is changing or is it just that now I'm so high up in management that I'm really seeing what we've been about all along? And I think, you know, looking back, it, it truly was the latter. Um, and so that was, I think that was really, there were a lot of things that happened in, two, in, in, in 2009 that caused me to question what we were doing at the organization. We had, we were building this humongous 78,000 square foot, um, abortion facility that was going to be aborting babies through the six month of pregnancy. Um, that was a problem for me. I thought, you know, there's, when it comes to the point of viability, I thought abortion was wrong and, you know, here we were going to be aborting viable babies. And so, um, there were just a lot of things that were going on that year that caused me to say, what in the heck is going on? And so, um, but that budget meeting was, was crucial. And then about a month later, I witnessed a live ultrasound guided abortion procedure where I saw a 13 week old baby fight and struggle for his life against the abortion instruments. And, um, I knew then that I was on the wrong side of this debate. I knew that I was going to have to leave my job. Um, honestly, that was really scary to me because it, it was all I had known for so long. Um, but I just knew that, you know, ultimately I was going to have to leave. I was going to have to make some difficult decisions. I knew that that was going to mean leaving all my friends behind. I mean, um, all my friends were, they were involved in the abortion industry some, you know, in some way. 
Um, we were Episcopalian at the time. And when I decided that, you know, I didn't want to work at the clinic anymore and we became pro-life, I was called in by our priest um, and told that, you know, we were no longer welcome in the Episcopal Church of America. Um, so it felt like everything was really turning upside down. Um, but you know, that's what happens sometimes, even when you're doing the right thing, it feels like sometimes your life is just flipping around. Um, but it doesn't mean it's not right. And Mm -hmm. so I just had to keep holding on to the faith that my parents had, had raised me with, had given me as a child and just knowing that I was truly doing the right thing, even though it was incredibly hard. Well, I can't believe that you were actually asked to leave the church. That's something that is really foreign to, I think, a lot of people. You know, they haven't really been in a position where they've been asked to leave. So that is, you know, it's just very outrageous. And, um, The idea, though, of having to leave everything behind, your friends, everything that you know, your job, I think a lot of people have been in that position, whether they've, you know, come into the Catholic faith or whether they've walked away from something that they realized was morally wrong. A lot of times everything comes with it and it feels like everything's coming toppling down in a negative way um, and that you're just going to be left in the midst of this rubble. but. I think a lot of times what we see is that God is really getting rid of some of that baggage because it can't really exist in the way that he's recreating us. And um, so what I've noticed is that advocating for abortion has become a necessary part of feminism. And it's mostly of an entire political party. Being pro-life makes you the enemy of free thought, human rights, and progress itself. What would you say to a modern feminist grappling with the truth? You know, it's interesting. I mean, when I worked at Planned Parenthood, I definitely considered myself a feminist. I had all the t-shirts, all the stickers, everything. Um, But when I look back at that time, and particularly working at the clinic, I really can't think of a time where I actually empowered someone who came to me in a crisis. I mean, essentially women would come to us and they would be in this very difficult situation. And, you know, some of the common scenarios were, you know, well, I'm pregnant and my boyfriend doesn't want anything to do with this baby. And, you know, or he broke up with me. And our answer was basically, well, yeah, that's, that's really bad. And you certainly aren't strong enough to be a single mom. You certainly aren't strong enough to do this on your own. So uh, we're going to give you an abortion. You know, we're going to basically capitalize on your vulnerability right now and turn you and your child into a commodity. Um, and you know, or, or even, you know, women that said, well, I'm, I'm, we were in a college town. So we had, you know, a lot of girls that would come to us and say, well, I'm in school and I'm pregnant, you know, it'd be really hard to have a baby in school. And we just, every time, 
uh, we just continued to knock them down. And instead of building them up, we were just exploiting their weakness, exploiting that vulnerability. And that, that is the opposite of what feminism is and, and what it should be today in our modern society. Um, you know, to pit a woman against her child and it is so unnatural. And so it's really the antithesis of feminism, forcing women to choose between, um, their God given gift to be a mother, um, and their career that they've worked for is something that we honestly don't have to do. And if, and to say that we do, um, they're the ones that are are really telling women that 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 we are weak and that we aren't strong enough um, to do you know multiple tasks. I mean, look, women are better than anybody at multitasking. Um, yet we're being told constantly by society that we have to pick one or the other, and we absolutely don't. And look, if somebody wants to pick one or the other, that's okay too. If somebody wants to be a stay at home mom and wants to give up their career, that should be acceptable in our society. Um, that should be acceptable among feminists, but it's just a constant us versus them instead of this idea of complementarism. And that, that, really isn't what feminism was founded on. It's really not what it's based on. Right. I think there's definitely a feeling that you're either in the club or out of the club. And even if you were, quote unquote, in the club at one time, as I can speak from personal experience, as soon as you take that pro-life stance, you're really out of the club. You know, that that's pretty much separation in a lot of areas. And it's interesting what modern day feminism kind of allows and doesn't allow, um, like you were saying, to choose stay at home mom or, or, you know, to be able to do more than one thing. And on that note, um, it's a good time to say that you recently posted an ad from Walsall Healthcare, um, which is a, a sexual health services organization in the UK that generated a lot of shock and anger. And the ad shows a high heel and a stick of red lipstick with the words, would you give up this? And below is a baby pacifier with the words for this. Now, I know as a mother who feels blessed, accomplished, and fulfilled, this ad really made me angry. Why is motherhood demonized as the robber of personal fulfillment? Yeah, I think it's because we live in truly, um, we do live in such a self-centered society right now. I mean, I hate to say that, but, um, we really do. So, you know, here's the thing, even if you, even if we're saying, you know, you don't have to choose between the, between a career and a child or whatever those high heels and red lipstick was supposed to, I don't know what it means. My husband thinks it's like going out and partying. I, I don't know. I don't know what it's supposed to mean, but, um, the fact is that our natural instinct is to always choose our child. Um, that's part of being a, a woman. That's part of our, um, innate calling 
you know, our physical bodies, the ability to have children speak to a higher spiritual truth that that's actually that women are called to mother. St. JP two talked about how women are called to mother the world. So it may not even be children that come from your womb, um, but that women are made to nurture, we're made to care. Um, and so trying to slough that off as, you know, well, that's not really what success is. I think that is the epitome of success is not just embracing feminism, but truly embracing our femininity as women and allowing ourselves to be who we are and not worry about the social stigma. I mean, look, I have seven kids, so I get comments all the time from pro-choicers who are like, oh, you're just a breeder. You know, it's sort of become a joke. Like now we call ourselves breeders. <laughs> um, but I get that all the time from people, yet they don't respect my right to choose to have a career and to have seven children. Um, but somehow it would be acceptable if I had a career and had one child. And that, that is just not what it is to support women. It's certainly not what it is to support choice. And I think um, somehow throughout history, we have, as women, kind of in our fallen nature, have always tried to run away from that desire to nurture, you know, through society, maybe social um, voices, always trying to convince ourselves that that is not success or that's not um, an end in itself or there's not total fulfillment in something like that, having children, nurturing children, raising children. And like you said, it doesn't have to be our own. It can be a spiritual gift to the world, adoption or, you know, um, religious life or any number of other ways. Um, And whether that ad meant you know, going out to party or having a career or whatever it was, just not being tied down. Um, I think you said it best when you said it was the bottom line was, would you choose yourself over someone else? That was kind of the bottom line of the whole thing. And, and I think, like you said, on the surface level, it appeals to young people because yes, of course I still want myself. I still want that freedom. I'm scared of giving my whole self to another human being and um, laying my life down for another human being. So it's kind of sad to see that, like you said, capitalized on, that ad capitalized on. Um, And your ministry, and then there were none, helps abortion clinic workers transition out of the industry. How does that work and how successful is the ministry? Yeah. So um, about five years ago, well, about six years ago, I, you know, came up with this idea. I thought, you know, we have hundreds of ministries for, uh, you know, people who have had abortions. We have ministries for women who are considering abortion, men who have gone through an abortion siblings who have had, you know, uh, brothers and sisters aborted. I mean, we have, we, it, you know, the, the ministries out there regarding, you know, concerning abortion really run the gamut. Um, and so I started to look around to see, was there anything for people like me, people who had worked in the clinic, people who also needed healing, maybe people who wanted to leave, but they're working 60 hours a week. They're a single mom. They can't try to get another job right now. Um, and there wasn't, 
And honestly, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I just thought, what in the world? I mean, at that time, we've been at this for almost 40 years and nobody had thought, you know, maybe these workers, maybe they could be, um, maybe they are a part of this puzzle, a missing piece of this puzzle. And so, you know, I got it going. I, it was interesting because I, I went to, when I was sort of just, it was in my mind and I was talking to some people I know who are, you know, leaders in the pro-life movement and asking them, you know, get their opinion on things, ask them what they thought. And pretty much every one of them looked at me and said, um, oh, it'll never work. Workers won't come to you. They don't trust us. Um, and essentially that the thinking I believe was, well, the thinking in the pro-life movement was that these people, there are a certain group of people among us who are too far gone um, for the touch of Christ. And I just thought that was ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I just don't believe that. And so I got it started thinking that, you know, maybe we would have 10 to 12 people come to us in a year because I mean, admittedly it is a hard sell. Um, you know, these workers are being told that the pro-life pro-life movement hates them, that we want to kill them, that, um, you know, we want to harm them in some way that we can't be trusted. And so I, I didn't know, um, how successful it would be. So, I mean, I, I did, truly believe that if we had 10 to 12 in a year, that that would just be blow us out of the water success. And so, you know, you can imagine my surprise now, you know, our first, uh, five years, I mean, we're at, uh, almost 470 abortion workers who have come through our ministry. And then we, what we didn't expect was to actually have physicians contact us, but we've had seven, uh, full-time abortion doctors actually come through our ministry as well. So yeah. it's been really amazing to watch this happen and um, to see God touch the hearts of people who so many believed were beyond his mercy. And um, just the thankfulness, I think, that they feel. I mean, it's it's just, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see their lives changed and to see their lives transform. And do you reach out to them or is it more just an open door policy where you're just kind of getting the message out and they can contact you guys if they. So it's both. I mean, we are proactive in our outreach. So we do reach out to them. Um, we send about three times a year. We send mailer like postcards or letters or some sort of mailer into every abortion clinic across the country. We have, probably the most accurate and extensive database of abortion clinics in the U S. And so we reach out um, to them about three times a year through uh, just sort of a generic mailer, just letting them know about our services and who we are. Um, we also train people who are on the sidewalk. So um, we work very closely with sidewalk advocates for life, which is a sidewalk counseling ministry. Um, they train people to go on the sidewalks and, and peacefully approach uh, women and workers. And so we, we train them on their workers program and help, you know, help people decide whether or not they are the right person to be reaching out to workers and then how to do that. Um, 
We also have a handwritten card ministry. We have a group of ladies that uh, write handwritten cards into all of the abortion clinics across the country, just personal um, messages. And uh, we work with pro-life physicians. So if a pro-life doctor has a position open in their clinic, they can contact us and say, hey, I have an open position um, if somebody from the abortion clinic will, you know, come over, I'll hire him today. Um, wow. And then a lot of it is word of mouth. I mean, if, you know, if one worker will bravely leave and contact us and get help, then the help they feel like is so awesome, then they reach back in to the other people they worked with and then they get them out as well. So, um, it's a really comprehensive program. We help financially, emotionally, spiritually. We have healing retreats for them. Um, we have uh, attorneys available for them if they need it. Um, we have a resume writer on staff, somebody that an HR professional that does practice interviews with them, goes through interviewing techniques. We have headhunters on staff who specifically look for jobs in their area. So you know, we feel like we have a pretty comprehensive program for those who do want to leave and, and, and find help. That's great. And I know the doctors that do leave, um, those are some of the most powerful stories. Like you said, nobody is beyond that grace. Obviously you were not beyond that grace to leave, to change your mind, to walk away. And, um, the same with the abortionists, you know, even though they are, you know, right there at, they're right there on the battlefield. They're seeing what you saw maybe many times a day and it hasn't changed their mind or their heart yet, but there's always some grace that can change them. And um, I found it interesting that the new president of Planned Parenthood is actually an emergency room doctor. And not only that, but um, she is Chinese, born in China and fled with her parents from China to escape the one child policy. I found that very ironic that not only is she a physician herself, but that she, you know, her parents made this choice due to the one child policy to flee. And now she finds herself as the president of the nation's largest abortion provider. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it was, uh, there was definitely some irony there um, when I saw who they had appointed. I was familiar with her because I was familiar with her um, through the work she's done with the city of Baltimore. Um, you know, it was interesting. I mean, I, I think that she's coming from a, a good place. Um, I think that she is coming from a place where she, she's truly deceived by Planned Parenthood, believing that they are, you know, doing things that they uh, say they do, but really don't. Um, and, you know, and believing that they don't do things that they actually do. Um, and so I, I, but I, yeah, I, I found it ironic. I mean, I looked at, I looked, I scoured the internet trying to find something from her, uh, where she had previously talked about the, you know, forced abortion situation in China. There was nothing, um, you know, it, 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 yeah, it was definitely interesting. It was a, it was a good pick for them. I mean, a physician, a minority, um, a woman. I, I, I knew um, as soon as Cecile 
resigned, I knew that, that they would definitely um, be choosing uh, someone who was a minority to fill that spot. They need to energize their minority base. So, um, so that wasn't a surprise, but yeah, I, I think one of the things I found most interesting was she was talking about how as an, an ER physician, you know, she, she recalls this woman who died because of this at home abortion. That's what she called it an at home abortion. And I just, I, I couldn't help but sort of roll my eyes because I thought, what in the world do you think you're walking into lady? Like you're walking into an organization who within the next, you know, five to 10 years wants 75% of the abortions that they oversee to be done through RU46, which will be done at home. That is an at home abortion. Right. And the, the, you know, risk of medication abortion is significantly higher than a surgical abortion. Um, and it just made me wonder if she really knows what she's gotten herself into. I'm not sure that she really knows the risk that Planned Parenthood is essentially posing to women who come into their clinics. I'm not sure she knows about their dangerous push for medication or at home abortion. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think she needs a lot of prayer mm-hmm. um, for sure. Um, but really, I just I pray that this is a critical time right now. Um, you know, she's sort of in the honeymoon phase right now with Planned Parenthood. They've brought her on. They're making her, you know, out to be this hero, celebrating her. It's a really critical time right now because now is the time where they're going to be really pushing their talking points and their agenda on her. She's not familiar with the Planned Parenthood talking points like Cecile Richards was. Um, You know, she hasn't been sort of inundated, I don't believe, with their rhetoric um, and their jargon for as long as Cecile was before she took that position. So, um, you know, she hates Trump. And I think that was really what sort of got her to the front of the applicant line because of, um, you know, how she's really gone off after Trump in the city of Baltimore. Um, But I I think right now, as she is starting to research on her own and as things are being presented to her, now is a really critical time for us to be uh, praying for her and that, that she would see through these talking points that she would see through the rhetoric that, that she as an educated woman, a physician would be able to see the truth behind their lies. Um, you know, once you're in for so long, it's very difficult to leave, um, because the callus on the heart builds up and the blindness, um, it, it becomes very thick. And so um, I think now, though, is a really important time for all of us to be praying for her and that truth really penetrate her heart. Right. I like how you said that she's in the honeymoon phase, because that's exactly what I was thinking. This is probably such a huge position for her. This, you know, national spotlight is on her and um, mostly in a positive light. I mean, she's being applauded by every, you know, public figure and organization. And, 
Um, her story is going to be posted all over every major news, um, you know, publication. So I think the honeymoon phase is a really good way to look at it. And it's hard, I'm sure. I'm a Baltimore native, <laughs> by the way, but um, not a physician <laughs> by any means. So, um, but yeah, I think truth one of the things that I always like from scripture and from so many saints that have said it is one of the kind of curses that God allows when we refuse to look at truth over and over and over again is just, he kind of just allows us to go our own way. You know, he just kind of allows us to, to give in to our own blindness. He doesn't cause it. He doesn't desire it, but he kind of allows us um, to walk in that blindness. And I think that was kind of the image that I was getting when you were talking about um, the callous that after so many years, after so many lies, after so many excuses, and maybe even seeing things that you have to explain away um, to your own self, to your own conscience. I think after a while, you do kind of give into your own blindness. And really, that's the only logical excuse for some of the people that have seen what they have seen behind the doors of Planned Parenthood and still continue to report to work every day. And then um, just as a last question to what's next for you, I know that you recently filmed a movie based off of your book, Unplanned, with the same film directors who produced God's Not Dead and I Can Only Imagine. The Hollywood Reporter stated that the film was shot in secret under an assumed title and quoted director Chuck Hanselman as saying, no matter which side you come down on, there's a big chunk of this movie that will make you uncomfortable because Abby's been pro-choice and pro-life. Tell us about the dynamic of this movie. Yeah, so um, about four or five years ago, uh, Chuck Chuck Hansman and Carrie Solomon came to me and asked me if I would ever consider turning my first book into... Um, a major motion picture. And at that time, I'd really never considered it. Um, But we started talking, I met them and they're just these super faithful Catholic men. And, um, and I just felt like, you know, if I was ever going to do it, they were the right people to do this with. And um, so, you know, it took them a long time to write the screenplay. I think they just sort of thought we're going to open the book and we're just going to sort of turn the book into a screenplay. And they did that. And it ended up being like four hours long. So (laughs) they had to stop cutting things, you know? And, um, and so we finally started filming. Um, we filmed April and May. I mean, I'm not in it, but I was, I was there for, much of the filming. And so they finally started um, filming in April and May and it's just really beautiful. I mean, um, all of the cast, all of the crew, everybody that worked on this film uh, was pro-life, really believed in the project, really believed in what we were doing. Uh, it was so bathed in prayer every day. There was a ministry team. They started with the devotional at 6.15 every morning. And the ministry team was there all day, every day until they wrapped. Sometimes that was 10 o'clock at night. Sometimes it was midnight. Um, and so we just, we saw some amazing miracles take place on set um, while everything was being filmed. And uh, I I do believe that 
this is an important film, not because it's my story, but because it really does expose what's taking place in the womb during abortion procedures. And I, I, I believe wholeheartedly that one of the reasons that abortion continues to take place is because it is done in secret. And, uh, you know, we, we look at, you know, let's, no matter where you fall on this issue, we look at these, you know, police shootings and it's emotional for everybody because you're watching someone be shot. You're watching someone die and it's emotional and it rips our heart out and it makes us nauseous to see it and to see this human life being extinguished. Um, it's incredibly emotional, but we don't see that with abortion. We can see the aftermath of abortion through these gruesome, gory pictures, mm -hmm. but that's not showing the humanity of the child. That's not showing that child fighting and struggling for its life. Right. Um, and that's the humanity. That's that instinct that we all have, that fight or flight instinct, that response. And you don't see that. And so what I will say is, no one will go watch this film and walk away and be able to say, well, I just didn't know. And right. I think that's what I'm most excited about. People will know after they watch this film exactly what takes place, exactly what the abortion industry is all about and how they're manipulating and exploiting women and their children. And that's something that, you know, if you're pro-choice and you go watch the film and you walk away and say, yeah, I'm okay with that then fine, be okay with that. But everybody needs to know exactly what they're supporting when they support a particular cause. And this is going to show them exactly what's taking place. Right. So I have to ask, how weird was it to see someone playing you? Did you get to have any say in who was going to be the actress that played you? You know, they asked me how involved I wanted to be um, honestly, I really trusted them to make the right decisions. I mean, what do I know? I know nothing about this. I don't know anything about <laughs> any of this. I don't know anything about casting or, uh, making a movie. And, um, and so I knew that they were extremely prayerful, uh, during the casting decisions. And they did show me some, um, some different clips from different people that they ended up casting just to sort of get my thoughts about them. But I really, I really trusted them to make the right decision. And I can tell you that everybody that's in this film, um, they're in it for a reason. They are passionately pro-life. Um, almost all of them have a story, a reason why this film, um, was so close to their heart, a reason why they wanted to, to play the role that they did. And I think it's, I think it's very powerful. And so I'm hoping that it won't just be pro-lifers that go and see the film, right. but I'm hoping that it, it will bring in a lot of critics. Um, and I believe it will because it's a controversial topic and people will want to just, they're, they'll be curious. Yeah. They'll want to so blast it. And that's great if they go in so that they, yeah. I mean, people that are writers, you know, need to go see these things and they feel like they already know what they're going to write before they get in there. They already, you know, feel like they could write it before the movie. And then hopefully by the end, 
they'll be completely transformed or at least have a lot of questions. Right, right. And that's the prayer is that they walk away transformed. And so Um, when can we expect that? Okay, so it will be released March 22nd of 2019. So this is coming up March. Okay, great. All right. So everyone should be on the lookout for that and bring all of your closest pro-choice friends and family to the theaters for that to tell them that they're going to see anything else. And this really great feminist (laughs) activist movie and then just, you know, hurry past the uh, the all the pictures and signs and just get them. That's that's my goal. Round them up, and then we'll see how many people storm out. They'll be like, "Wow, a lot of people are storming out halfway from this movie. What is going on?" And that'll make like twenty more people want to go see it just to find out why. So that's right. That's why. Right. Hey, look, the more negative press we get, the better. Yeah. So absolutely, uh, we're okay. We're okay with the negative press. We're okay with the critics um, because the more they talk about it, the more they generate buzz about it, the more people are going to walk in and watch it. Okay, great. So write angry things about this film. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the takeaway, right? No. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I want to thank Abby Johnson so much for taking the time to be here with us on the Dignity of Women to share about her experience being in Planned Parenthood and then walking away from Planned Parenthood. And I just want to thank her for all the advocacy work she has done and truly supporting women in their decision to mother their children, to choose careers, to do any of the above, um, but to not feel that they're limited by the social constraints that we hear so many times. Thank you so much, Abby. And you can find Abby at www.abbyjohnson.org. Or you can find out more about And Then There Were None at abortionworker.com. Thanks, Abby. Thank you so much for having me on.